if you look at the tests and you look at the code, it was you know, over 90% more efficient than Compound, which was a, you know, protocol built by a team full of professional engineers. And, you know, I, I had billions of dollars in it and all those people were, were professionals. They were very experienced. And then like, I was just some 15 year old kid who, you know, built like a, something that was, you know, 90% more efficient, like in my room and it, and it had more features and stuff as well. But that, that's like innovation. And I didn't, I didn't have to spend like a single, you know, dollar or whatever on, on computation or, or GM, GM, everyone. My name's Degachi, the host of Scraping Bits, and today I'm with a special guest, Jess. How's it going, man? Hey, I'm good. How are you, dude? Not bad, not bad. Busy day at work, but uh, we keep going. Uh, keep it yeah. rolling. Um, just for the people that don't know about you, who are you and, and what do you do? Yeah, so uh, my name is Jess Shadeja. I am a you know smart contract developer based out of California. Yeah, I've worked at I've worked at a number of startups. Um, like Rory Capital, uh, Pentagon.xyz. And right now I'm working at Waymo doing some custody stuff. And I also, I didn't, you know, start Huff, but I, I like to say that I started like the Huff community. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of like an overview of what I've done in the last two, three years. Mm-hmm. Which is quite a lot. And I think like the entirety of your story, which we discussed just prior, uh, prior to this was very interesting. So I'd like to kind of get into that and how you got into, you know, the spot that you're into now, right? Um, yeah, for sure. So, especially being so yes. young, if you want to mention your your age. Yeah, so I'm I'm 17. I'm going into my senior year of high school, so my my 12th grade um, mm-hmm. right now. And how did your career start and and progress into where it is now? Yeah, so I began writing code back when I was 10 years old. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I learned about you know, computers and how to use them, um, you know, from going to my grandparents' house and, and playing Roblox. And so <laughs> I immediately just had, it was like a love at first sight thing. Like I had a connection with, with that computer. And so one day, just like the natural progression was to start, you know, learning how to code. And so I learned Python. I start out with, with some very basic things, you know, small games, like terminal games, building some like simulators and stuff for teachers. And then I get into web development. I'm not very good at it, but I, I write some backend stuff and, and build some basic websites. When COVID hits, I'm in eighth grade and me and my best friend, who you guys know as Transmissions 11, uh, who works at Paradigm, we got into, we like, we wanted to build a project. So we looked for, we looked around for project ideas. And the thing that we stumbled upon that really, really caught our interest was building a blockchain. And so mm. Uh, together we build this like really shitty chain um, called like PyroCoin. I think it's probably still online, so you can look at you know how bad the code is and how far we've progressed since then. But I build one node in Python, and then he builds one node in Go, I believe. Which uh, his node was a lot better than mine. Like my code <laughs> really sucked. But um, yeah, so from that, you know, even though the code sucked, we never launched it or anything like that. But we learned a lot about how you know, blockchains worked, right? All the basics, right? What proof of work was, what a gossip protocol is and how account balances are stored and whatnot. Um, so yeah, that, that gave us a lot of experience and knowledge. And then uh, we don't touch blockchain for another like six or eight months. Um, and then he ends up getting hired by Jay Bhavnani at Rari Capital mm-hmm. as a front-end developer. So he starts doing that in the way this is, this is during COVID, right? So the way that, you know, we'd all connect rather than meeting in person was by, you know, playing like Valorant and other video games. And so we'd get on discord calls and all he would talk about is, is like working at this company and what it was like. And then he'd also tell me about Ethereum. And so we both had heard of Ethereum while building this blockchain. 
but we never really looked into it. We just thought it was some like shitty clone of, of Bitcoin until until he goes into it, right? Because he's he's working at a, an Ethereum smart contract, yeah, uh, or DeFi protocol um, where smart contracts are being written. And so he, he comes yeah. and he tells me like, Ethereum's so much better than Bitcoin. Like there's these smart contracts, you can run code on the blockchain and it really just blows my mind and I get really interested. And so I start grinding on, on learning Solidity like just every day for, for a few months yeah. um, until Jay hires me at Rari as well. Mm. And for like a year at Rari, I don't I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm writing smart contract code for them. Um, you know, it's not great, but I'm learning a lot. And then Transmissions 11 then gets into Solidity as well. He starts learning it. And it, it's kind of funny because I like, you know, he's, he's really well known as a, as a fantastic Solidity developer, but I taught him all the basics of, of Solidity. So that's like my little <laughs> my claim to fame there. But He's your creation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, and we start working together and then he gets into, he's just getting into like gas optimization and stuff. And because we're working on the same projects, I end up getting into that as well. And it's, it's yeah. really interesting, um, you know, and we both really enjoy it. And we, we start working on this project called like Vault. So it was Rory Capital's, uh, Rory Capital ran a yield aggregator mm. and we were going to build out the second uh, iteration of that, which was, you know, the code is up and it's way better than the the first iteration. And it's, it's also, it's actually even, um, it's mentioned in like the Foundry readme because it was, it was, you know, one of the first major projects to use DAP tools and you know, that's, that's when transmissions went and started talking about DAP tools on Twitter. And, and that's kind of uh, the popularity that resulted yeah. from that is why Foundry ended up starting. So, yeah. So, so yeah. So then I got into, I got into DAP tools. I got into gas optimizations and all of that stuff. And it was really fun. When we finished the project, he ended up moving to Paradigm. And then I started working on, you know, Rye Capital's signature, or the second iteration of Rye Capital's yep. signature product, Fuse. And so, um, you know, when I started working on that, I was like, okay, I really enjoy gas optimizations and I'm, I'm decent at it, but I want to, you know, I want to get into a whole new, like get to a whole new level. Were you building it by yourself or along, alongside other people? I was kind of leading it, uh, especially the development, but I was working alongside other people who helped me with, you know, architecting it and whatnot. But yeah, I kind of, I kind of took lead on that project. You were leading it. How old were you at, yeah. at leading? <laughs> I was, uh, I was in my sophomore year of high school so i was uh i think i was 15 wow 15 16 okay. interesting yeah. how, how was that experience yeah. oh it was it was so much fun like i really enjoyed it because at that point i i did not enjoy school at all and so this gave me like a yeah. you know i i don't know it kind of strengthened my my belief that school wasn't important because i was like oh i'm 15 i'm leading this project and you know when it launches it'll have a billion dollars or more because the rari tvl at that point was at like a billion but yeah, I never ended up launching, unfortunately, but I, I did get the code from, you know, the former Rari CEO um, and it took, it took me a year to get a hold of it, but he finally gave it to me um, like six months ago or so. And then I've uploaded it under like, I think generalized lending protocol on my own GitHub page. What, yeah. And, and that project is like my, the, my favorite like solidity project that I've ever written. Um, mm -hmm. It like early test showed that it was, uh, I think 10 times more efficient than compound, which, and the reason why I, I looked at compound rather than Aave is because fuse V one was just a compound fork. Right. So it was, it was literally like 90% more efficient than what we had already. Yeah. And so, yeah, but so I, I want to get, and, and so the reason why that is, is because, you know, right as I started building it, I, I was like, okay, I, I really want to take my like gas optimization and like EVM knowledge to yeah, yeah. a whole nother level. 
so I went around and I, I asked like, Hey, how do I, you know, how do I learn more about this? How do I start writing inline assembly, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I've run into this guy, um, Dylan Keller, who like, he's become like, a, he worked on a, he's a core contributor for open seas seaport. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knows a ton about the EVM. Like he's, he's a total like EVM wizard and he knows a lot, but he, he yeah. was like, you know, Aztec protocol a few years ago, built this thing called Huff and, you know, I've been playing around with it and it's taught me a lot about the EVM. And so mm-hmm. I started working on little projects, you know, with Huff and, and I'd always ask him questions. He'd always be there to answer. Like he, he, he taught me a lot about what I know, almost everything that I know about the EVM just cause right. he was always there to, to answer for me. But yeah, so, so part of working on, on this original, like working with this original, you know, iteration of Huff, I, I, it was, it was very difficult, right? Cause only a few people had ever used it up to that point. I'd say like, you know, under 10, under 10 people had ever written code using Huff mm-hmm. and yeah, the, the code base was, it was pretty messy. Um, there weren't a lot of features and it was just overall really difficult to use. You wouldn't know where errors were coming from the way that I end up debugging is I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't debug my code. I'd have to debug the compiler cause there were occasionally <laughs> issues with that, or I'd have to like log exactly where, you know, my code was going wrong. And yeah. so I realized, look, if, if I want to, keep using this, I should just rewrite the compiler for myself and then oh, you know, I'll share it with people and then we can all get into Huff together. So I rewrite the compiler in TypeScript and I add a ton of new features such as as constants and, and I, I fix a lot of things as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that my code base was good. It was also, you know, it was very slow, but it was a big improvement from, you know, we had previously. And because I wrote that, I also, you know, had a new found familiarity with, yeah, I mean, with, with like the Huff compiler and the code. And so I used that to go and build a you know foundry plugin and hardhat plugin mm-hmm. and after that i realized okay now this thing is really easy to use you can write you know test with it and you can now it, it's really easy to like you know interact with other like solidity contracts people can actually start to use this for modules and stuff that they want to hyper optimize and so you know after that I, I end up starting the discord server and the twitter and people really you know really like huff and like they really just fuck with it so yeah i end up i end up going all in and, and i get people motivated about it and i get people using it and i go and i share it around and yeah so I, I was really surprised by how much people liked it um and then you know all of a sudden there's people you know rewriting uh, rewriting it in rust like improving the compiler by a right. lot right writing vs code plugins you know building actual projects with it um you know huff mate like the huff version of Soulmate started up and and yeah so that was that was a ton of fun. And I even, I was working at Pentagon.xyz at the time, um, which was another one of Jabob Nani's companies. Okay. But we ended up using Huff for a little bit. And it, it was just really cool to see this creation actually, you know, be used in production and, and to see people so excited about it, you know? Yeah, it's surreal, right? Like just from was. messing around with some optimization and you know, just rewriting a compiler casually. <laughs> yep. And so, you know, building community and now... Yeah, this community is giant, right? It's such a hot topic in crypto, or at least the EVM kind of space. Every time I look at the Huff Discord and I see people joining every day or talking about it, it just blows my mind that like this this is kind of started. I, I built, I rewrote that Huff compiler like during winter break, right? So I was off from school and, mm. you know, it was like Christmas break. And so I, I decided to rewrite it. But I just think about, I never imagined it getting so big and I didn't think people would care at all. Curated some some of like the best devs in the entire space, right? Like my career wouldn't even be where it's at now 
if you didn't actually do this, <laughs> which is crazy. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's wild. Like I, I like I said, I never imagined, I never imagined it seeing it, but but it represents like the beauty of open source, right? Just someone can go and start this project and then create a Twitter for it. And then all of a sudden, just, you know, a bunch of smart people who are excited about it or a bunch of smart people get excited about it. And, mm. you know, all of a sudden you have, you, you turn, you go from zero to one and then one to a hundred and it turns into something like this, which is just, which is just beautiful and, and really exciting to see. What were the main kind of difficulties you you found when rewriting this compiler? Yeah, so I'd say I'd never written a compiler before, right? So if you look at like the original Huff compiler, or uh, not the original, I guess my, my original yep. version of it. Um, so the one that I wrote in TypeScript, uh, it doesn't have, you know, natural elements of a compiler. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's no like, you know, parser and like there's all those like steps. I, I'm not super familiar with compiler design. Yep. I didn't work on the Rust rewrite at all, but uh, you know, I, I talked to the developers as they were doing it and I was always on the calls when they planned it out. So from that, I, I learned a little thing or two about compiler development, mm -hmm. but I had really no idea what I was doing. And so it was, yeah, it was difficult. And also just, I was trying to, to keep it somewhat similar to the old code base. So, because I, I didn't, I wanted to kind of preserve like Zach and Aztec's original vision. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to um, go too far from that. And so I, I wanted to keep the code base, you know, somewhat similar. And it was a very difficult code base to understand. Mm. Um, cause it was, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, it, it, the reason why is because they built that thing in like a weekend, you know, because they, uh, the reason why Huff was built is because the Aztec team was trying to build an on-chain elliptic curve, uh, contract and, right. you know, solidity was not efficient enough and inline assembly or, or Yule was also not efficient enough. So they were like, okay, well, let's just go build a whole new language, which is like, you know, very Chad move, but yeah, so they, they go and they go and do that. And, um, and yeah, so that, that's really why they only built Huff for themselves, right? They didn't think anyone would, would really care. And so, yeah, that's why I ended up, I ended up rewriting it there. But uh, yeah, that was, that was the most difficult for me. Just not understanding compiler design, not understanding that original code base. Because compiler design is one of the, I think, hardest topics to learn. Yeah. And even learning the skills in compiler design, it kind of branches off into a lot of other advanced topics, like, I guess, formal verification, you know. Then you got like cybersecurity side of stuff, uh, program analysis, which I think is like a great pathway to get into because I also go into like the compiler design stuff through like disassembly and then decoding. And then it kind of like, you know, just led me down the path of, okay, now I have this, this representation of the bytecode. How can I, what, what else can I do with this? And it's kind of just like, oh, okay, I can, I can do, anal uh, I can analyze it for, you know, vulnerabilities because, you know, as you're writing Huff, you're kind of doing that auto, like manually. And if you think about it, if you if you know that well enough, you can eventually you know automate it. You find patterns and you recognize heuristics and you you can build algorithms to kind of do this for you. Exactly. Yeah. So that that was the one like other value uh, you know value add that I saw in Huff, um, which was that it would you know that that it taught people about like how the EVM worked. Um, oh yeah. And also like. As you're saying, right, it taught you a lot about formal verification and, and like understanding all of these things. So, yeah, I mean, so like, because I, I, Huff, frankly, isn't super practical for like writing production ready code, unfortunately, just because, I mean, even, even like with yeah. Solidity, right, it's very easy to make a mistake that could lead to the loss of, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Huff, you know, with Huff, it's like 10 times easier to, to make a mistake like that. And so, yeah, but that it makes me really happy to like, to hear that people are, are learning so much. Like I, I, I didn't even realize that 
you know, until talking to you today that, you know, learning about the EVM through Huff could take you on such a, a wild like journey where, where you just learn so much and, and are exposed to so many different topics. Yeah, I think specifically because I, I think the EVM is such a, a simple, you know, virtual machine that if you were to do this with, you know, a, a different virtual machine, right? Um, then it will take you a much longer time. But since it's very compact and not a lot of things are going on, it's more of like simple, more of a simple architecture. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it's faster to learn this. And then I guess the faster you learn it, the more, the, the easier it is to kind of master. And then once you master it, you think of other, other possibilities, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, it's definitely like the best way. I think I remember when I started, I was like, okay, how do I actually learn the EVM at its fundamental level in smart contracts, right? And then, it was Jay Chile, but basically the whole, everybody was telling me like, learn half, learn half, don't do inline yeah. assembly. And I was like, why would I do that? But it's because you can manage the stack and that's kind of like the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, inline assembly, you can't do that. And, you know, once, once you learn how to manage the stack, you realize all the optimizations that can happen, um, which matter because you save, you know, ridiculous amounts of gas. The the exactly. compiler, Viper compiler, it's all like it's all it's building all this like unnecessary bytecode at granular level that doesn't really matter. <laughs> Whereas if you did it manually, you could manage it a whole lot better. But obviously it's you know super complex to build something like that that's very efficient. Which I mean, you know, if you build a compiler, you could always build like an optimization kind of tool as well. Uh, so you can go down that route as in forward engineering instead of reverse engineering. So there's so many pathways, man. It's, it's kind of, it's sick. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. It really is. Um, yeah, I mean, going going back to, to the point about how, you know, with YOL and inline assembly, as well as like Solidity and Viper and how those languages abstract a lot of, um, you know, a lot of like, the more, I don't know, like it, they abstract like the stack and the, uh, yeah, they, they, I don't know. They, they abstract a lot of like the actual yeah. EVM. And so like through writing them, of course, you're going to learn about how, you know, how the EVM works on a very high level. But like, yeah, I mean, with Huff, you learn about managing the stack and, and dealing with all of that. And, and bro, I lost, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, managing the stack, assembly, Yule. Oh yeah, actually. Okay. Let me, let me go back to, to where, like where I started this and then, yeah. So, yeah. So going, going back to your point about how, you know, you'll and other languages such as Solidity and Viper kind of abstract things like the stack and the more lower level aspects of the EVM. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like, yeah, that's, that's where, that's where I found like writing Huff and and working with Huff to be a little more valuable than, than working with you and inline assembly. Right. And then once you, once you learn about that, just when you're, when you're writing solidity and when you're writing like Viper code or any other, you know, higher level EVM language code, you just have like this like elevated level of like understanding, right. At this yeah. point, you know exactly what's happening mm-hmm. in the code, you know, in the code below, but then, you know, as, as you're doing that, you also, when I was writing Solidity code after, you know, learning Huff and learning how to write Huff, you know, I, I had an idea of what the code was doing, right? So I, I thought like, oh, you know, um, say you're like adding two numbers together, right? Or, uh, I don't, or actually, I'm going to say, let's say you're dividing, you're dividing two numbers. You think like, you know, you're just dividing two numbers using the, you know, the divide opcode, right? Or you're pushing two numbers to the stack and then using divide opcode. Yeah. But in reality, there's so much more happening, right? <laughs> that the Solidity compiler, you know, doesn't 
allow you to see. And so, yeah, it gives you, it gives you this, like, you know, once, once you actually realize that, cause, cause when you look, when you decompile us, when you compile a solidity contract into bytecode, but then you convert that bytecode to just like opcodes, the code is just really confusing. You're like, what, what is this? Why there's yeah. so many like random, you know, things here that, that don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, just like writing Huff kind of gives you, gives you an idea of how unoptimized these languages are. And so for a while I was like, okay, I, I kind of want to write a language where like the intermediate language is yeah. Huff. Yeah. That, that would have been, that would have been kind of cool, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like that, a solidity kind of thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's yeah, like a big. Sure. It's like a big point of. I also had the realization as well, where you know you learn half and you understand how the stack works and the stack works and how to make it, you know, hyper optimized and super efficient. Where you know you're not using memory, and then you know duping it multiple times, etc. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, okay, you have one variable, let's dupe that and use it somewhere else later down the road. We'll just keep it in the yeah. in the back of the of the stack and kind of swap it out later. But in Solidity, it's like a whole different process of just, you know, redundant, you know, memory M loads, you know, adds. Like if you if you go into the current compiler and you do, you know, an S load plus another S load, it's it's gonna just do a whole bunch of extra you know zero plus whatever number it was swap it dupe it pop it like it's really weird <laughs> yeah. Really is. yeah and it's still like that i think i mean all these compilers are still very early stage so it's understandable building a compiler is super fucking hard but yeah um yeah it's it's it really opens your eyes and when you understand that you know how to optimize it at you know, uh, a macro level as well. For example, if you're doing an M load and well, if you're storing something to memory and then if, if you're grabbing a storage slot and then putting that into memory, in the granular level at the bytecode, what you're really doing is doing an S S load and then an M store, right? So mm-hmm. you're actually using yeah. the same variable twice, whereas you could directly just use S load and use that for the variable instead. Um, yeah, exactly. Instead of doing the extra steps, you know, spending extra yeah. gas. But yeah, it would have been crazy to see how this this whole progressed. And uh, I'm I'm pretty interested in how why didn't you really get into you know node development when you when you first built a blockchain, right? Like you you built your own node initially, which as you said was kind of shit. But I mean, it's still a <laughs> node, right? <laughs> yep. So why didn't you go down that route of you know? contributing the ETH, I mean, GIF or, you know, something else along those lines. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason why, like after writing, you know, that blockchain, both transmissions, I didn't get into to node development is because we, we, you know, built it with the belief that it was just like one, one project that we're going to do. Right. We mm. like, you know, looking back, I'm very grateful that we did that project because we both ended up getting into blockchain development. But at the time I was like, okay, we're both, you know, kids, we're, we're just looking for like a fun project to do because we can't like see each other. And yeah, we have a lot of time on our hands because we can't really like go outside and whatnot. So yeah. we just ended up building that. And then we, we built like different projects between that and like we built like games and stuff in between, you know, finishing that and then him getting hired at Rari. And so 
yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that like I would have got into it if, if say like a no development opportunity ended up arising, but you know, mm-hmm. for me, like a smart contract development came up and then like, just, I was very, I don't know. I, I found, I found smart contract development to be incredibly fun, right? There was this like added layer of like pressure, for example, with having to write, you know, secure code, but it, it all felt like a puzzle almost to me. And yeah, it was just a, it was a very solidity was just unlike any other language that I had touched before. And I was always like constantly learning more and more about Ethereum and, and smart contracts and, you know, the solidity language. And so I found that, you know, so much more interesting than like, I think any, anything else that I could have worked on. Right. Cause like when you're obviously you're constantly learning more as you're writing, you know, code in other languages, but with solidity, there's just so, I don't know, you solidity kind of felt like a, like a game almost, right? Because you're 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 constructed you're constricted by you know the bounds of the EVM, which aren't aren't very you know large at all, right? So you're yeah. you're trying to you know as a Solidity developer, you're trying to do as much as possible, um, or as a smart contract developer, sorry, you're trying to do as much as possible within these small bounds while also trying to like optimize the code as well. And so it, it felt every every you know program that I developed felt like a challenge, and every program that I developed taught me so much. And so I never, I never really wanted to get into anything else. And, and right now at the company that I'm working at Waymont, I haven't had the opportunity to do smart contracts that much. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm really like, I really want to. And so uh, every opportunity that I get, I try and, I try and do smart contract stuff, but yeah, it's, it's really, it really is just a beautiful language. And, and you learn, you learn a lot also about about working with other languages. Funny enough, from from writing code for the EVM, right? Optimizations yeah. and and also just yeah, learning about the EVM taught me about like what what is actually a stack, right? Um, and mm-hmm. um, the memory in the EVM is similar to the heap, right? So I I don't know that kind of taught me a little bit about that. And and yeah, I don't know it, it it's it's fun and it, it yeah it teaches you a lot. Yeah, I think the gas specifically is. Like a very predominant, like significant kind of thing in terms of optimization, because not only does it make your code, you know, run smoother uh, and it's easier to read, but it also has value behind it of, okay, if your contract is highly optimized, it actually correlates to how much it costs to run it in a monetary aspect. And I think that for me, translated to writing these very you know time time com, what, what's the word like a time sophisticated something like that like something that requires a lot of computational power it 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 indicates the significance of how important it is to have optimized code uh, even though it's not like directly related to money um coming from that background of you know gas and execution costs um, based on how much code there is, it gets you thinking. <laughs> you want to make everything as optimized as possible. And maybe it wouldn't matter as much on like small little functions, but at a broader scale on these large complex systems, it really does matter, especially with for loops, which we see majority of the um, of the gas being being used. Like people using, you know, they're just calling S load in every single iteration of a for loop instead of caching in and using that. So I guess it, it translates to that, but you're also interested in AI, aren't you? How's that pathway going and how have you really started that? Yeah. So, so frankly, I haven't, I haven't done a ton in AI. Um, okay. I, I learned a little bit about it. I taught myself a little bit, um, you know, about the basics of, 
neural networks. Um, you know, I, I made a few notebooks for example, I think, I think the, the main project that I did that, that, you know, um, really taught me a lot about AI was, was going and building like an MNIST digit classification task from scratch. Um, mm-hmm. looking back, it wasn't a very complicated project, but I, I learned just so much about how neural networks really work on, you know, on a lower level from doing that. Right. Because I, I didn't use like TensorFlow or any neural network library. Mm. I just used NumPy. And so I had to work on the like ma- matrix multiplication stuff mm. and uh, dot products and stuff all from scratch, which I didn't really know how to do. And, and because I'm in high school, my like math knowledge isn't super developed either. Mm. Um, you know, I just finished calculus, uh, like calculus one. So I, I learned a lot. I learned about like linear algebra and stuff from that project as well. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, while AI is a very cool space to work in and, and it's obviously very, you know, developed. So what I'm about to say doesn't really, you know, apply to every, you know, aspect of the AI field. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what I noticed, right, is is that it's, it's very difficult to, to innovate, right? Unless you have a lot of computational resources or money. Right. Because if you want to build like a state of the art, um, you know, model, right, you have to have, you know, computation for training it. You need to have time to, you know, wait for it to train. And, you know, you, you also have to have the data. Right. So I found that kind of interesting because it was more of just like, like working, working with it specifically in, in the like deep learning field, mm. you know, and I'm, I'm sure it's different with things like reinforcement learning, et cetera, but with deep learning in particular, which is, which is what interests me the most in AI, you know, it was less kind of coding and, and yeah, like programming in the traditional sense where you're just like solving problems and writing algorithms and, and yeah. stuff um, and more, you know, architecting models and then, you know, modifying them slightly with each training iteration based on, you know, based on what you find about the, uh, the accuracy and, and like trying to minimize error, which I think is, is cool, but it just wasn't right for me because I like, you know, sitting down, you know, coming up with the solution of a problem and then writing like an algorithm to do that. And, and also just like, you know, being able to innovate without needing a ton of money. Right. So, so mm-hmm. for example, right. If we go back to like fuse V2, which, which we were talking about earlier, the code that I wrote for that, you know, which once again was never actually deployed, but um, if you look at the tests and you look at the code, it was, you know, over 90% more efficient than compound, which was a, you know, protocol built by a team full of professional engineers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I had billions of dollars in it and, and all those people were, yeah, I mean, all those people were, were professionals. They were very experienced. And then like, I was just some 15 year old kid <laughs> who, you know, built like a, something that was, you know, 90% more efficient, like in my room and, and it had more features and stuff as well. But that, that's like innovation. And I didn't, I didn't have to spend like a single, you know, dollar or whatever on, on computation or, no. or, you know, in order, uh, in order to do that. Um, so I, I prefer that. And so I realized like, okay, maybe AI isn't the space for me. I also just, to be honest, don't enjoy AI development and, and neural network development as much. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I mean, there's other fields that aren't deep learning, but deep learning is just what interests me the most, right? It's what really excites me, but it's just a difficult space to work in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- I can see how it, how it is like that. You you need like resources basically to even get started, um, for I guess very complex things or in, innovative things. Whereas you know with smart contracts or anything else where it's like kind of manual. I think with smart contracts specifically, I even noticed how easy it was to to innovate. As you said, with that you could just you know find something, find units, and make them more optimized, add some more features. Bang, in, innovation. <laughs> 
Whereas, you know, with something more complex, you're going to have to build a massive system, resources behind it. And maybe someone can't just look at it and make something better overnight. Like theoretically, I guess they could like on a piece of paper, but <laughs> implementing it, probably not. Yeah, in practice, way more difficult. And I think I want to touch on also is, I mean, working so young as well is, you know, quite the, quite the feat, especially in school, juggling that. So what was that kind of experience like? I don't think, like I, I never experienced that. I, and I'm sure majority of people don't experience it either of, you know, becoming a software developer at some young, such a young age. Of course, you can go work at McDonald's, which is kind of the standard route <laughs> or, uh, you know, retail, bar, all of those kind of jobs like hospitality. But this is like a, you know, a major step, which usually isn't even accomplished by, you know, university graduates until maybe they hit an internship, et cetera. But, um, what was that kind of process like getting your first kind of a, you know, hit and then iterating from that? I started in my freshman year. So my ninth grade of, of high school. Um, and, you know, thankfully for me, school was online at that point because of COVID. So I was, I was at home and yeah, I didn't have to be at school physically, which was a, a you know, a big time saver. So I'd like would not show up to class. You know, I'd, I'd finish my homework very quickly before school would even start or like, you know, when I did show up to class, I wouldn't be paying attention. I'd just be finishing my homework. And so by like three o'clock or, or even like earlier than then, I'd be all done with homework. I wouldn't have to worry about that. I'd be done with school. Mm. And so I'd just get straight to working. That was that was really easy for me, um, right? And I wasn't super experienced at the time. So I, I spent a lot of time like just kind of learning. But I, and unfortunately, like with that much time, I wasn't able to be as efficient as I wanted to because it was just like, it was, it was a little difficult for me, you know, just you know, being thrust into that, into that space. Cause before then I'd only worked on like personal projects and I'd only done what I was comfortable with. But when I got to actually, you know, working and building projects with deadlines and, and, you know, working with other people, it was, uh, it was, yeah, I'd say it was definitely difficult and I was pushed out of my comfort zone a lot, but it was, it was a lot of fun and I'm very grateful for that time period. Mm -hmm. Flash forward to after that summer in my sophomore year, of school, I find things to be a lot more difficult, right? Because it's like the first, my first time going out, like going to school in person while also working. I um, mean, so there yeah. it's, it was a lot more difficult for me to, you know, work during class, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and my, my parents are pretty strict when it comes to school, right? So I couldn't like skip class to work if I wanted to. Right. Although I tried and I got caught and it wasn't good. But yeah, occasionally I'd miss, I'd miss uh, class to do work calls and stuff, but, but yeah, so that was a lot more difficult. It just, it's hard, right? Because like, this is almost like a full-time job, right? Doing, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it kind of was right. Uh, I was technically hired full-time, but then I had like another full-time job, which was going to school. Right. And then, right. you know, homework is basically like unpaid overtime, right. That you, <laughs> you just work on. And so yeah. it'd be like, I'd go to school during my breaks and stuff. I'd try my best to, to work on projects and during classes that didn't matter as much to me. I'd, I'd be working. Then I'd have to come home and do homework and then do my work after, which was, which was pretty difficult. And I was able to manage that for, for the year, um, mm. for my sophomore year. And then, yeah, then the summer of that, uh, of that year goes by and then I'm, I'm in 11th grade, which is the year that I just finished. Mm. Um, so this is my junior year of high school. And, and there, you know, uh, a lot kind of goes wrong at the start of the year, right? There's the whole like FTX debacle and, and oh, yeah. uh, crypto just wasn't in a great space. And I was like, okay, this is a little too much stress for me. Um, I just want to, you know, go back to focusing on school because at that point I realized that I did want to go to uni. 
Um, and so I needed to have good grades to get into the schools that I wanted to. And so it's okay, I'm just going to take a break for this school year. Um, and I focused on my, you know, social life, right? Like I actually went and I hung out with friends on the weekends and like, you know, <laughs> normal stuff. met girls and stuff like that. Yeah. Like normal kids stuff. And, you know, I, I got my license. I bought a car with the money that I made at, at Rari and the other companies that I worked at. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just kind of enjoyed life this year. And I got, I got back into things this summer. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing is, it's like, there's, there's a lot of kids, you know, across the country and across the world who have, who have passions like I do, right. Whether that's, you know, programming or, or like, you know, engineering hardware, even, even like art and, and music yeah. and stuff like that. And it's, um, it sucks, right. Because we're all, we're all kind of forced to do this whole like school thing um, where we're, you know, where we have to learn about things that we're not, you know, super passionate about and things that are also not useful. But yeah. I find it really funny that, you know, I, I was not, you know, I was told not to work on the projects that I was building and, and to focus on work where I'm actually, you know, building like billion dollar protocols and, and like working with, you know, um, the merging of, of pro like companies and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so that I could learn about, I don't know, whatever the hell we learned about in school. You learn art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I learned about like art history, stuff like that, that, you know, isn't super valuable. And so yeah, at, at that point, you know, I was frustrated, but I, I had a good year for sure. Just like living life with normal kid. Like stress was a lot lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was cool having social life too. It's kind of weird though that, you know, you were told to do school when, you know, you have this this job, right? Like a full-time job in such a lucrative space as well. Like the whole point of going to school is to get a job. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and I mean, you've already accomplished that task. So at that point, what's the point of school? Yeah, yeah exactly. I, so, so like throughout my entire kind of programming, you know, journey since I, since I started, I think that like the most difficult part was actually dealing with my parents. So when I was, when I was younger, when I was in middle school, like from ages like 10 to, I'd say 14, right. But, you know, um, before COVID happened, I, my parents didn't want me to, to code, right. They saw it as the same as like video games and they wanted me to focus on school. And as a result, I I'd like, you know, I'd wake up at like four in the morning to code before everyone was awake or I'd hide in my bathroom, right? Like when, when kids are in their bathroom with their computers, they're not, they're not, you know, coding. Um, And so I, 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 you know, I was, I was building like projects and stuff like that. And so that was where the main pressure came in when COVID happened, you know, we I was stuck in my room, you know, all day and no one could tell me like my parents were in my room constantly. Right. So they couldn't see whether, you know, what I was doing. Yep. Um, and so that's when, you know, I really started to excel and when, yeah, when, when I really started gaining experience and my, my skills started improving because I'd literally be like programmed for like eight hours a day. Cause I was just stuck in my room the whole time. And, and I finally had the freedom to go and do what I wanted. And mm. then, you know, with, with work, they were also the ones telling me like, okay, don't, you should be focusing on school. You should try and get into a good school. Like you shouldn't be doing this. And, and yeah, so that was, that was really difficult. I'd say that that was kind of the major force making things harder for me to, to improve and to work. And yeah, they didn't really start like my, I remember at like a family function at one point, you know, I was working at Rari and my, my dad goes around telling everyone that I'm working at like a legitimate, like pyramid scheme. And so all my family was like (laughs) really suspicious and, uh, you know, obviously like crypto is suspicious to people, but I was, yeah. I was not happy that he went and told everyone that I was working for like a full on scam. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. And so they didn't, they didn't take it seriously though, until, until I bought my car and then they were like, okay, maybe this is actually, you know, valuable. Cause my parents, they, they both grew up in, 
in poverty, right? So they they were very poor. Their parents worked factory jobs and stuff like that. And their escape from that life um, was was school, right? They both did well in school, went to good universities and and ended up, you know, doing well. But it was it was because they, you know, they put effort into into school and like, you know, some of their close friends from high school and middle school, whenever that they didn't put a ton of effort into their into their education and they didn't end up um, you know, doing much, they, they stayed in, in that poverty and that, and, right. you know, never moved out of their hometowns or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they, they saw that. And I think that there's like some level of, of subconscious, like, yeah, like uh, equivalence to them um, or correspondence, I guess, but between not paying attention to school and not doing anything when, when in reality, I think, especially with our generation, like school is not what you need to, to necessarily do well, because, the internet's here, right? It's, and now, even with more tools such as ChatGPT, you can just go and, and teach yourself whatever you want yeah, for free. And all of these, like, yeah. exactly, right? Like monetizable skills. And like yeah. in university as well, what you end up doing is also just doing the same thing as what you would do outside of school if you were you yeah. know, motivation disciplined enough, which is basically Googling and using ChatGPT yeah. to help you find your answers. <laughs> so exactly, exactly. That's the real skill you get out of it yeah. except in a more i guess directed sense you're not forced to do it yourself obviously i don't know yeah. i didn't go to university but that's what i assume i would do because <laughs> that's what i did in high yeah. school um yeah exactly yeah but the other thing is that in in like computer science um and, and just like programming degrees and in, in, in classes mm-hmm. you learn a lot more theory which is you know which is definitely useful but you know, for building projects, it's not something that you you need to know. Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, when you go to university and you take, you get a computer science degree, like you, you will have taken a bunch of classes just on like programming and like computer theory and all of that stuff. Okay. The way, and, and you're self-taught too. So I, I know that you, you definitely like relate to this, but when you're, the way you learn when you're self-taught is you just go and you build projects. And whenever, when you're building projects and you don't know something, you just Google it and then you learn that, right? Yeah. When the way the approach, like the educational approach to programming and computer science is, okay, let's, let's teach them, you know, the basics all at once. And then let's teach them a bunch of like useless theory. And then we'll have them go build projects. When in reality, it's a lot faster to start with the projects and then pick up everything you need to know along the way, yeah. because then it builds it. Like it strengthens your ability to, you know, to, to, uh, you know, gain new knowledge and um, absorb new material and information right as you're building and so you can like literally go and build whatever you want right because you're just so flexible and so open to to learning new things that like if you want to go and learn a new programming language or start developing a new field like you already know how to do that because your entire programming journey has just been you know doing that exactly right that's how you learn Um, whereas yeah i mean if you're just learning theory like you never really know how to build anything so i don't know if this is true or not because obviously i've never worked at like a you know a big like a large uh you know tech company but you know from what i've heard and what i've seen online there's a lot of people who come out of you know ivy league schools or like really good computer science programs who have literally no idea what they're doing because they were never taught how to build actual projects and we're only taught about like the theory behind programming which once again isn't isn't that useful for actually going in and, and doing things yeah, I think the main, the fastest way to learn anything is to go try it. And if you don't know how to do it, you just, okay, you hit an error. How do you get around this error? How do you fix this error? And then that's how you progress. It's kind of interfacing with what's, interfacing with the real world, right? You know, if you hit a roadblock, you've got to get over that. Otherwise, it's not going to get done. 
And the only way you get over that is by learning. And I think what with school, it, it teaches you a whole bunch of theory. Then you go try and apply it. But I think a better approach is more of, okay, I think in the in the computer programming, it's definitely, this is the best approach, just go try, do it, and go learn it if you hit a problem. But I don't know for other kind of fields, whether you must learn the theory. I, I think for medicine, specifically, yes, you should know the theory before you go apply. Otherwise, you, you know, you can't do open open heart surgery and go wing it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, with computers, I think it's definitely, you know, the the trial and error case. And Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think of an AI, that's basically what it's doing as well. You're you're training something to go try it. And the feedback loop is attempting to, to learn and get better. um, So it's to pass that kind of failure, which, you know, is exactly like what we're doing. Otherwise, if that wasn't an effective method, why would AI, be where it's at now and why is it accelerating so quickly right <laughs> so someone's literally taken that way of thinking and built you know something living <laughs> or you know eventually you're going to become living um where it's teaching itself right so i think it's a great kind of skill it's also a skill this this thing is mm-hmm. you know researching and applying and trying and it's also a discipline thing so i think it's a a whole kind of personality slash character development thing and you know I, I wish i did it way younger if i was in high school looking back and i i knew about programming i would have dropped out at like the minimum which is like year 10 but yeah i think school is also great for socializing in understanding humans and interacting with them uh, i don't know how people homeschool you know you don't get that diversity of different people personalities and how to build these social skills of interacting with them and communicating. That's, I think, the biggest plus in school. Obviously, you can get yep. to a point where, you know, you're knowledgeable of English, math, and that's really all you need. You don't get taught taxes. You don't get taught business. You don't get taught, basically, how to fail and move on. It's all reward-based, as in, okay, you get this number, on a piece of paper try not get that number lot next time and it's kind of really demotivating as well if you get like you know a bad score on a test you feel really bad whereas you know in programming you fail oh let's go <laughs> let's go learn this new yeah, thing exactly you feel, you feel good about yeah. it yeah exactly right like it's it's it provides a whole new opportunity to learn something new right like it's it's when you're when you're self-taught in programming the way that you approach everything is with like a, a quote-unquote like growth mindset right Whereas school is very harsh to people who don't succeed their, their first time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of kids who, you know, unfortunately like don't do well at the beginning of their educational like journeys, right. Elementary school and middle school. And, you know, because of that, they never believe that they can, you know, they can do more. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate how it just kind of, you know, how the school system just kind of encloses you within this, this like, box if you don't do well from the get-go whereas like with programming especially when you're self-taught if you you know there's always you know you you approach everything with this mindset that there's always like you know room for growth and you know if you don't understand something like you can just go and figure it out and that's that's where the fun of it is as well yeah on top of that is also when you fail you know there's potential there of 
okay, I think this is possible. Let me go test this theory and make it possible. So it gives you like excitement to go. It's like a hunt, I think. Like you want to get that, get the reward, and you want to, you know, do whatever it takes to fix this problem. You spend hours on it. Time goes by. It's suddenly four a.m. and and you still want yeah. to do it. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, exactly. you know, where when you're like studying, you don't necessarily want to do it. It's more of for a score, just so you can get something out of it later, which you might not even want down the line because exactly. when you're young and you don't actually know what you want to do, getting into like a I don't know like that. I think it's controversial, but from my experience, it's it's not worth to go to uni if you don't know what you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess it depends on your situation. But there's only there's so many avenues you can go. Like me personally, exactly. I, you know, I, I was working two jobs when I finished high school, and I didn't know what I wanted yeah. to do. And I was working at retail in a bar, and I was just okay. How do I actually get money without working yeah. for someone? <laughs> and yeah, exactly. I think it fundamentally comes down to: Are you willing to build up the discipline to get to the next level? Because in reality. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to push you apart from yourself. You know, yeah. all the time you're alive, you're by yourself. Sure, you, you have people around you, but ultimately they're not going to be, you can't have an external factor motivating you, pushing you to the next level. If that's the case, then you got to re- reassess hard, I think. If you're not willing to do it every single day, despite your emotions, and if you're not consistent, then... There's going to be someone that's doing that, right? And you're just going to be left behind or, you know, work for that person that is consistent. Very uh, philosophy-based. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> very deep stuff that we're getting into. Yeah, yeah. But it, it is like, honestly, the basis of anything, anybody's success was, you know, you need, and you, success is obviously subjective, but I think to accomplish anything, you, you need to really be disciplined and being self-taught or I think... Yeah, so like computer science in general, you got to be self-taught to just, you know, find the questions and then search them up, find the answer to the questions that you're, you've developed. It all comes comes down to you've got to do it. Nobody else is going to do yeah. it. You've got to, you know, think of the questions, think of what you need to do, prioritize, manage all your time. You know, and this is with anything. I mean, you can go have a job where someone directs you for, you know, nine to five or you can go try and do something yourself. And I'm not saying like having a job is necessarily bad. You can learn a lot from it and enjoy it tremendously, but it all really comes down to the same thing. <laughs> you've got to yeah, you've got to be disciplined in whatever mm. work you've done. And I wonder what the what the next steps are for you. Um, how do you kind of see yourself progressing? Because it's, it's going to be, you know, in the future, you're going to look back at this and be like, oh, okay, maybe I didn't take that path or, or I did and it's what I predicted. So I guess, yeah. what? How do you see your your future going, and what do you want to be in the future? Who do you who do you want to be? That's a that's a good question. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I've done this multiple times throughout my kind of like life. Is it's great to set a target for the person you want to be, and you've got to. I think the limiting factor for everyone is belief. If you really believe. You can you can set a target, right? And you can follow a path to get to that point. And you can identify the characteristics of that person that you want to be and the habits. What does it look like in a day-to-day life? And through that, you can really formulate um, I guess routine to to really 
get to your get to that point where you you really are that person you've just written down. Um, and I, I think it is something worth dwell, uh, dwelling on and thinking about because that's ultimately, you know, your future that you've just written down. And you've got to manifest it. So I don't exactly. expect you to answer it instantly, but like it's good to have a general idea, I think. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And that's that's really great advice. I, I appreciate that. So I think, yeah, so I mean obviously a lot's happened in, in the last few years and I've gained experience that most people, you know, don't experience, you know, until they're a lot older or they don't, you know, a lot of people just never experience this at all. And so that's definitely shifted my way of of thinking on on like what like who do I want to be? Like, what do I want to do? And so when I, when I started working and, and just up until somewhat recently, it was like, okay, well, I, I just want to, you know, keep working and, and just start companies and stuff for the rest of my life. And, and yeah. And, you know, recently my mom though was, was diagnosed with cancer and it oh, shifted my perspective once again. Oh, no worries. We like, we as a family have learned a lot from it and yeah, but, but it, sh- it shifted my per- perspective, right? This, this, in addition to like, you know, me getting like a social life and, and starting to hang out with people because I, I stopped working. I mean, I realized that like, there's a lot more to life than just, you know, working. And, yeah. and so I realized that like, yeah, I want to, I want to have fun. Um, and, and yeah, so I, a lot of people are like, okay, I want to like retire by like 30. Um, and I never see myself, you know, fully retiring. Right. I always have to do something. I always have to, and this is what I'm passionate about right? Like working, mm-hmm. building things. Um, and I, that's something that I want to do, you know, until the day I die, but yeah. I do want to spend more time just, just like really enjoying. Um, and so what I want to do is after college or if I drop out or whatever, like Loki just <laughs> want to like make a ton of money, travel the world. I love, I love cars. I want to have like a, a car collection, you know, go, go out and drives every morning. Like yeah. that would be the dream for me. In order to get to that point, you've, you've got to identify how do I get there? And yeah, yeah, exactly. Some steps. So obviously, you know where you want to, what you want to, what you, what you want your life to look like. But then the next mm-hmm. steps after that is, okay, what kind of person actually has this life, and what yeah. pathway can actually get to that point? For example, 100%. obviously, you can have someone with a successful startup. Okay, what kind of startup do you want? For example, for me, it's yeah, you know, fully automated kind of auditing platform okay what does a world leader in this field look like right yeah and it's like okay you got to read obviously all the papers see what the competition is get good under get a good understanding of you know fuzzing in both web 2 and web 3 and then what are the problems you're actually facing if you go to the most granular level which you know goes back to half of the fundamental understanding, what is necessary to achieve this? And then you kind of modulize as much as possible, put them into the smallest task. So you have a very achievable goal. For example, like Call of Duty, right? You have the prestige and whatnot. They're, they're all yeah. very small goals of just like one level up bar until you get to the maximum. And so yeah. it's like kind of building it in the same way where you're gamifying life of, yeah, okay, go get to this step okay now you have an mvp how do you get to the next level from the mvp how do you make it better and that's where you get you know users to interface give you feedback and then now you have clear steps of how how to get to the next place and it's just kind of you know doing doing that kind of strategy it's very simple but it's super effective yeah, and it really is you just got to kind of construct your life towards a um 100 so like frankly i don't know what what the next steps are but i think one thing that kind of struck out to me about what you said there and also, um, you know, a little bit in our last conversation is, is like mapping out 
what like uh, what kind of person you want to be, right? So I think I think it all comes down to to discipline and a few other skills um, or, yeah. or traits or whatever you want to call them. And so I think that like rather than focusing on like okay, what kind of startup do I want to do, or how do I want to make the money, or like what what skills, or I mean less so the skills part, but more those two in particular, right? Like thinking about mm-hmm. the exact steps. Um, I'm thinking more about you know what what kind of person do I want to be, right? Like how, how do I stay, you know, how do I stay disciplined? How do I improve myself so that, cause the world, the world is changing a lot. Right. And so by the yeah. time I actually get to starting my first company or, or going and doing whatever it is that I end up wanting to do, the world is going to be very different than, you know, how it is today. And, you know, frankly, I'm not in a position to start a company today, but I know that at some point I will be, and I want to be, you know, prepared. And I want to be, you know, yeah. in the right headspace when that day actually does come. The next steps for me are just, are just kind of preparing for that, right. Building good habits. Right. Yeah. And also just learning, learning a lot. Um, so my, the purpose of my work, you know, the reason why I got into working was, you know, because I wanted to be a part of something. And then that kind of changed to two reasons because I enjoyed it. And also because I like, you know, I like seeing the like number go up in my wallet. <laughs> Yeah. And then now it's, it's less so about, you know, making the money and, and more so, uh, about, about just really like learning. And also, cause I, I do, I do really enjoy it, but now I, you know, I, I look up to the people that I work with. I'm like, okay, these are the kinds of people that I want to become when I'm older. What exactly do they do? Right. What makes, what makes a successful, um, entrepreneur, mm-hmm. what kind of decisions do they make? What, what does the day-to-day life look like of someone who is, you know, building a company and doing a good job of it? And so I'm learning, I'm learning a whole lot about that. And it's also just like, you know, I'm, I'm also trying to build, you know, good habits and good skills, right? Things like meditation and, and exercising and just taking care of myself so that, you know, and, and these are skills that I'm looking to build and, and continue for the rest of my life. But I want to put myself in a good position in a good headspace for when that day comes that I, that I do start a company or I do go on and, and, you know, start working on the things that, yeah, that, that will like, you know, make, make me or make or break me, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, like what I did when I was younger, um, you know, around 18, 19 is just build the habits because eventually they translate into everything else. Uh, no matter what kind of career you take, as long as you have good habits, you, you're always going to you know, find time to do what you want, even though it might not be as, as much as you want at the end. As long as you're doing something that you would want your future self to do, like let's say an hour, for example, working on something. You yep. can eventually build that up, that, that one hour to, you know, two hours, three hours, four hours. And eventually you get to the point where it's, you know, 16 hours a day or what do you really want? Um, as long as you're, you know, you get into the flow state within those, those hours that you're given, which is kind of like the core, I think. The flow state is very underrated. You can have, you know, two hours a day or three hours, but that's, you know, that's all you really need if you're doing intense focused work. Um, yeah. And that can be in any kind of thing and even finding the time and kind of optimizing your life <laughs> in, a, in a way where you can do this is, is very important as well. But I'm, yeah. I'm super keen to see how, how your life kind of plays out. Uh, it's Thanks, like, me too. <laughs> it's like looking back to, to like my, my past self and it's very exciting. Yeah. I, I can't wait to see how you progress. Appreciate that. Of course, man. Um, but we are getting to an hour and I don't want to keep too much of your time. I want to thank you very much for, for coming on and you know sharing your life with me, right? And uh, I, I'm really excited to, to see how this progresses. And we'll definitely have one in the future when it does progress. 
I appreciate that. Yeah, man. I had a lot of fun today and learned a lot too. This is a great discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone else wants to come on the podcast, please DM me at scraping bits on Twitter. Or if you want to suggest someone, always do. You can also DM me that and I'll take a look into it. Otherwise, thank you so much, Jet, for coming on and we'll catch you on the next one. Yeah. See you soon, hopefully. <laughs>